You are listening to Aaron Bethune on the Above the Noise Music Industry Podcast. Welcome back to Above the Noise Music Industry Podcast. I'm Aaron Bethune, and today I am speaking with the CEO of Downtown Music Publishing, Justin Kalifowitz. These guys have offices all over the world. It's a global music rights management business. Their offices are in New York, Amsterdam, London, Los Angeles, and Nashville. I'm speaking with Justin in New York today. And to give you a little more information, Downtown Music Publishing owns and manages some of the most well-known song copyrights in popular music. Catalogs in the company's portfolio include the works of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, as well as celebrated film composer Hans Zimmer, singer-songwriter Randy Newman, and the pop band One Direction. In 2011, Kalifowitz launched SongTrust, and uh, you're going to hear a little more about this. In fact, I am always advocating SongTrust as a uh, service for for up-and-coming independent artists and, and also established ones to use as well. It's a music technology platform that provides royalty collection and administration software for, like I said, independent songwriters and corporate clients. The company's suite of tools are utilized to manage over 300,000 song copyrights across 40 international collection societies. Prior to launching Downtown Music Publishing, Califowitz served as head of A&R at the music publisher Spirit Music Group, where at the age of 23, believe it or not, he was named one of Billboard's 30 under 30 top executives. That's pretty impressive. During his tenure with Spirit, Califowitz worked closely with the song catalogs of such legendary artists as Bob Marley, Lou Reed, and Shaka Khan. Califowitz is a lifelong advocate for songwriters and the value of copyright. In fact, he's been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, Bloomberg, Business Week, and NPR, spoken at Medium, South by Southwest, and the World Copyright Forum, and has served on the board of the Association of Independent Music Publishers. Born and raised in New York, Justin is a graduate of the City University of New York, and he is a co-founder of New York is Music, which is a coalition dedicated to advancing the importance of music in economic development, culture, and education in New York State. Well, well, certainly very impressive, and I'm very excited to be asking Justin a whole bunch of questions on topics that he is very well versed and certainly a go-to source of insight. So without further ado, on to today's interview. Well, my first question is, how, how did you get started in the music industry? Um, you know, I was, uh, when I was younger, I was um, good friends with a couple of guys who were in a band and uh, I couldn't play anything. I was 13 years old. I desperately wanted to be in the band. I tried to learn how to play guitar. I tried to, I couldn't sing. I tried to learn how to play drums. And inevitably I was like sort of the hanger on. Um, but that, what that became was like, I, I was then the default manager. I would, uh, you know, carry their gear for them. I would fill out forms so they would get into the battle of the bands. And uh, lo and behold, they ended up winning one of those battle of the bands. And I learned after that experience that there was a music industry and that there was a job where effectively I thought at the time that one's job was to get paid to listen to music. And I thought, how cool, you know, um, you know, obviously all these years later, I've, I've learned that it's much more complicated than that, but that really was the essence and the driver initially was this notion that I was under the impression that there was a job where one could get paid to listen to music. And as an obsessed music fan, I couldn't imagine anything, you know, better than that. So I kind of put my head down and, applied for internships when I was in high school and 
uh, one thing led to the next, and I interned at a bunch of different places here in New York City, radio stations, record companies, uh, booking agents, management companies, and uh, you know, eventually found my way into the music publishing business. So when you say you found your way into the music publishing business, um, h- how did that evolve into having downtown music publishing? So, um, well, I'll take you back a step. I was working at Virgin Records in Los Angeles, and I worked for a woman who I was running the A&R department at the time, and she said something to me. Uh, I was, number one, I was homesick for New York, so I really wanted to move back to New York from Los Angeles. And, and number two, I was somewhat disenchanted with major record companies. This was in 2000. Virgin was spending money hand over fist on all these acts that they would drop before the records came out. Typical old school music business nonsense. And uh, I was a bit disenchanted because it was really clear to me that they were kind of more of just like a marketing machine and they weren't really that close to making the music. And I was complaining that it wasn't as interesting as I thought it was. And uh, this woman said to me, you know, look, you should go work in music publishing because in music publishing, you're you're basically as close to the to the birth of a song as possible without writing it yourself. And she's, you know, she said, uh, before you can record a song, you have to write one. Um, so if you want to be closer to the music, go, go be a publisher. Which I thought was an interesting comment. I, of course, had no idea what, book, what music publishers did. I okay. thought that like book publishing and that we would, and it was printing sheet music. And then I learned that that actually wasn't the case. Moved back to New York, got a job at a small independent publisher called Spirit Music. I was there for just over six years, uh, got to work with some phenomenal song catalogs, the Bob Marley estate, um, Lou Reed's catalog, Shaka Khan's catalog, uh, a number of contemporary songwriters who were writing hits for the Mary J. Blige and Dido and, and, and those types and uh, emerging artists like Scissor Sisters. Um, it was a really interesting experience. but. Um, at the ripe old age of 25, I was kind of fed up uh, working for someone. So I uh, thought I'd start my own publishing business. And while I was having those thoughts, I ran into an old friend, Josh Deutsch, who had started Downtown Records. He had had a tremendous amount of success in 2006 with Gnarls Barkley mm-hmm. and was interested in starting Downtown Music Publishing. So we got to talking and I came over here to launch Downtown Music Publishing in 2007. Wow. So I'm I'm curious, what what's the philosophy behind downtown music publishing? I mean, how 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 are you using today's technology and 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 being creative with the with the different catalogs that you have on board? Because I'm assuming that that must have something to do with how you have you know got into song, song trust. So maybe you yeah, can tell me more about that. Absolutely. So when we launched downtown in 2007, um, the market for music publishers was 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 looking a bit strange. Um, the, many of the great independent publishers of the past uh, you know, 20, 30 years prior had uh, sold themselves to, to the bigger shops or merged with some of the other ones out there. Um, I remember when I first started downtown, I said, you know, that spirit of independent music publishing um, that I even had felt a little bit of when I started at Spirit years before um, was, was kind of gone. You know, and banking was re- uh, publishing was really viewed as a, a banking play, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that's just not something that I think most songwriters and catalog owners are interested in. Um, so the first step was to hire some of my favorite people. Um, this is very much a service business at downtown, so it's really a you know, you're only as good as the 
um, as you know as the weakest link in your staff. So we kind of figured we would uh, just look to hire our favorite folks in the business. I was able to bring in a few of my colleagues here at Music, uh, including the people who manage sync licensing over there, uh, as well as administration. Um, we were able to hire people from uh, ASCAP, from other independent publishers, uh, bring in some great legal uh, staff, uh, outside counsel, you know, just had a broad range of industry experience, and kind of do it from the ground up and build our own technology in-house. Uh, not utilize the old systems, not license the old software that I felt was 10 or 15 years out of date, and put in place processes that spoke to how the music publishing business operated. I think it's important to understand that for many years, music publishers played a very passive role. They would collect royalties associated with album sales. They would collect royalties from ASCAP and BMI. Uh, they would handle cheap music uh, licensing deals and the occasional sync license. Because even though sync licensing is the most exciting, sexy thing, and everyone wants one, probably more badly than even a record deal, um, you know, at the end of the day, sync licensing for a hundred-plus-year-old business like the music publishing industry is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, certainly, at the scale that it, that it was. Um, so we built a business that sort of had all of the structure of, of what a modern music publishing company should look and feel like without the legacy issues of managing these old catalogs that, you know, are generating so much money from the passive way of doing business, you know. Um, it was really only when sync licensing became a big deal. I always say it's that moment when Bob Dylan appeared in a Victoria's Secret commercial. It's <laughs> say you just simply couldn't say anymore that it wasn't cool to put your song in an ad campaign. Um, and, you know, and then David Bowie and Lou Reed and, and, you know, a lot of the great holdouts for the licensing industry, Led Zeppelin and the Cadillac commercial. Um, not only were these big paydays for these, these, these songwriters and artists, but they were, I think, uh, a step in the direction of, of getting a whole generation to believe that licensing your music, film, TV and advertising was yet another way to reach an audience. Um, which completely changed the publishing business, you know. So we really built it from the ground up at that inflection point in the publishing industry where having a great sync team, being a proactive player in the business was super important. Mm -hmm. So in, so in saying, um, you know, essentially that it, it was a game changer, so to speak, with the sync licensing and... and uh, and all these big names starting to sort of say it's okay, it's you, it's not selling out, it's you know it's it's part of making money and also um, you know keeping songs alive. You're mentioning having a great sync team. Is is there anything else in in specific that you know whether it's from the technology perspective or just as your perspective as as, as the publisher and um, that that you do differently with that in mind? I'm I'm just just curious. Yeah, of course. I think one of the things that we do is we do as much licensing and income tracking in-house as possible. Um, we have our own engineering team um, here that has built all of the software that we use uh, to do income tracking and manage royalty collection. Um, it's, a, it's, it's really, from where I sit, uh, a core part of our gig. You know, um, Again, going back to sort of that passive nature of music publishers, they would accept the statements they received from record companies often as fact. They would accept the statements they received from ASCAP and BMI as fact. Um, we've built software that 
processes each incoming statement that we get and double checks to make sure that we were paid the right amount, that we were paid on a certain percentage of the song. For example, I can't tell you the number of times that a record company pays us for uh, mechanical royalties from album downloads. And even though we have 50% of the publishing on a song, due to human error, they're paying us out on 5%. Um, so, you know, that's a 10x increase when we catch that error. Um, our business is still full of um, human error, not downtown, but the industry is full of human error. And we found that the technology we've developed is able to really catch and snag a lot of it. I'm, I'm curious, though, because, I mean, this is just brought about something in my mind is, is you know, when you look at BMI and ASCAP and CSAC and how they collect and how they, um, you know, just as, as for, for example, even radio play um, and the fact that they're all using different technology. I think BMI are still doing just survey um, CSAC like to, uh, you know, or at least talk about using whatever the best technology is. I think uh, ASCAP are using um, BDS, I believe, or MediaBase was what they used to use. But when you start talking to people and you start to realize the human error also, especially with surveys, I mean, I'm just curious with the type of technology you have. I mean, obviously, you're you're going beyond um, just United States. I mean, you're going into Europe and Asia and all these other areas. And how, how do you deal with things when they don't align with, let's just say, the, um, you know, the PROs? So, you know, look, every society around the world has different ways of handling um, claims such as the ones you're describing. Certain um, organizations like the Harry Fox Agency, if they paid you on a certain number of units and you felt you were owed on more units thanks to uh, information you can call from SoundScan or thanks to information you could perhaps get from a distributor of a particular record, um, will sometimes go back and make a correction or an augmentation for you. Um, with respect to what you just described, sampling versus actually um, having technology that listens to radio stations and determines exactly what was played for exactly how long. Again, each society has different rules and regulations about how they're going to deal with that fact. Um, what, we're, what our technology is designed to do is work sort of within the confines, um, figure out what we think is wrong on the statements that we received, and figure out the quickest way to, to, to um, correct those issues. Uh, an example I can give you is that sometimes we'll make a global catalog update. We'll take over a catalog. It's called Catalog X. It belongs to a writer named Y, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll notify the whole world that we are now the publishing administrator or the, or the owner of this entire Catalog X. And all around the world, we'll start to get paid from different societies. And, you know, some societies will pay us the whole catalog. Other societies will pay us on 52 of the 100 songs. Other societies won't make an update at all. Um, and it becomes then a manual process to get each one to change. Uh, and from there, you build upon it. You figure out not only if they're paying you correctly, but how, uh, what, what percentages they're paying you on, the rates they're paying you versus historical. Um, and you use all of that data to figure out, you know, where the emphasis needs to be and where human error still exists. Um, I think what I can say is that the way in which the societies are paying out today is much more efficient than the way they were five years ago, and certainly way more efficient than they were ten years ago. I'm I'm curious, and you know, I, I know this is not really a, a publishing question per se, but just more interested in in, in your model. Um, you know, getting a lot of this data. I mean, one of the things that I've I've noticed, especially with sync deals, is you know people 
sort of celebrate the fact that they were on a certain show or in an ad or whatever it might be. And it doesn't seem to really go beyond bragging rights. However, when you're able to actually take that data and see where the ratings are highest for those shows or whatever it might be to actually give you an indication of you know more information on your demographic and also more areas to tour in, is is any of this data that you're collecting, um, you know, from the publishing side of it, is is there any of, of this information that you're able to then feed back to your artists, or is that something that's really not? Um, I shouldn't say artists; I should say songwriters and catalogs. But um, is 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 there anything from the creative perspective that that you're involved in beyond the publishing? Oh, absolutely, um, and it depends. You know, look, in certain instances, we represent songwriters who are professional songwriters who co-write or write exclusively for certain acts and you know while this data some of this data might be interesting to them they don't care so much for the folks that are really interested are the writer artists that we represent people who write their write and record their own material um, what we try to do is provide them with as much information in as much advance notice as possible about their music being used in a certain ad campaign or in a certain television program or a certain film uh, for larger acts that we work with Getting a song used in a commercial could open the pathway for their manager to have a, have a real dialogue with the brand about prospectively sponsoring a tour uh, or finding other ways that the band can be involved with that brand in a more meaningful way. Um, so yes, of course, we're constantly pushing that out there. Uh, on a different note, and I think what's interesting is the data that we're collecting is uh, what's going on with YouTube. Um, though the money's low and yeah. getting there, uh, you know, not where we want it to be. It's starting to climb. Um, one of the things we're able, we're starting to look at, and we haven't really put this to effect yet, but we're really interested in the phenomenon of cover songs on YouTube uh, and how even sort of marginally successful songs in, in sort of the traditional, I'm putting that in quotes, like traditional music business, can have hundreds if not thousands of different cover versions of them existing on YouTube. And uh, what we can do to you know, figure out which ones are the best, which ones are the most interesting, and uh, use those artists, use, use that YouTube community to help um, develop uh, the art, the songwriters and artists that we work with. Yeah, no, I, I, I must admit that the whole YouTube thing is, is quite interesting to watch with, you know, a number of different companies popping up too with the idea of even being able to track down, I guess, the, the actual compositions um, in those covers and I guess placing ads and, and whatnot on, on top of these other people's videos. Um, but I guess, you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing is obviously, you know, you, you've got a, a wealth of knowledge with, a, with an extensive background in the music industry. So at some point, I'm thinking you must have realized that, you know, there, there's got to be a way to, to give this, these benefits to people beyond just the, the publishing. So how, how, did, how did Song Trust come about? So a number of years ago, I had a friend contact me this guy I knew from 10, 12 years ago. And he said, uh, listen, you know, I had a friend call me, I wrote a song with him, and he said uh, I should take care of my publishing, but I don't really understand what that means. What do you do again? <laughs> and uh, so, I, so I told him, and, and we were talking, and he had a song on a small album that you've never heard of, on a label that you've never heard of, that was released in Europe. And I said, listen, Joey, I'll, I'll, I'll do an admin deal with you, you know. We'll take a small fee on any of the money that comes in and go from there. So we register the song through our traditional collection network, do a simple you know, one-page agreement with Joey. And within about nine months, we collected a couple thousand dollars. 
And you know, I called him up. I said, "Listen, I got a check for you a couple grand." And he he was so elated. I mean, he was really just beyond excited and elated about this. And when we had dinner, we were talking after I gave him the check. We went out to dinner, and of course, I had to pick up the tennis bill. Um, but I, I we went out to dinner. We were talking, and, and he said, "He's like, you know, listen, nobody in my." peer group, none of my contemporary musician friends who didn't have major success really had any idea that this kind of money was out there for them. Uh, and we started talking about the number of acts that were using services like TuneCore and CD Baby to distribute their music all around the world, but apart from perhaps affiliating with ASCAP or BMI, they really had no path to properly protect their copyrights. Uh, collect the, mon the monies that were owed to them. So I try started to think about, can we really automate this process? Can we do what I did for Joey for thousands, if not tens of thousands of musicians and songwriters who were just a little bit below the radar of the traditional publishing business? And we started thinking about it from a technology perspective. I worked with some outside developers on a framework. We looked at some of the collection society protocols and we realized that there really was a way forward. There was a way to automate this. And uh, after some extensive dialogue with MySpace Music, which at the time was still a vibrant place for where bands uh, congregated on the internet, if you will, um, we were able to look at some of their data and we were pretty surprised at just the extent to which the number of bands on MySpace the number of songwriters and musicians that existed in the MySpace ecosystem was about 10 times the number that existed between ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC combined. So what we learned from that was that there were a whole bunch of songwriters and artists out there who hadn't even yet figured out how to take that first step of affiliating with ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. And people always would say to me, well, how much do these guys really earn? And I was like, well, look, it doesn't matter if they're owed a penny, a dollar, or a million dollars, it's their money and it should be a simple way for them to collect that money, you know? Like, who are you to be the judge of what the minimum is? And I'll say, as an industry, we've, I think we've basically decided that the minimum is somewhere around $25,000. If you don't think you're owed at least, if someone in the industry doesn't think you're owed at least $25,000, then the only way you're getting a publishing deal is if creatively they're interested in signing a deal with you. Um, and that's an A&R decision, you know? So, for a whole, for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of songwriters and artists out there, you know, they had to wait until they hit this benchmark or had the good fortune of getting discovered, again, in quotes, for their creative prowess. I mean, why couldn't you just use a piece of software similar to the way you could use TurboTax to follow your taxes? Why wasn't there a simple piece of software that a songwriter could use to say, I wrote these songs, here's where they were distributed, uh, please let everyone know, and then pay me. You know, I just sound like this is a very simple thing to me. It's what we do here every day. So we started to think about how you scale what we do here every day, how you take out the nonsense. Uh, the first thing we did was remove the single biggest hurdle to a publishing deal, which is the cost of legal, the cost of negotiating a contract. <laughs> and we did what everyone else does, which is click here to accept the terms and conditions. We sat down and we authored what, in my opinion, is the most fair publishing deal ever offered. Uh, the major tenets of it are, number one, we never take ownership of your copyright. You remain 100% owner of the copyright. Uh, number two, 
the deal is a one year rolling deal, which means it lasts for a year and then you can cancel on 30 days. Number three, it's not exclusive. So let's say you want to only have us collect on 10 songs that you wrote with your friend and are on his album, but you're also in a band and you don't want to give us the song for the band, that's fine too. You know, just give us whatever songs you want to give us. It's a one-year exclusive period on those songs and those songs only. And after a year, you can, if you get signed to Sony ATV or if Downtown Music Publishing comes in and wants to sign you, or frankly, you just decide you're not interested in collecting money anymore, uh, you can opt out and the songs go back to you. So um, those are sort of the three tenants. And then, of course, the fee. Uh, you know, it's a one-time upfront fee of $100 and then it's a 15% fee on anything we collect. Um, the setup fee includes registering you personally with a performing rights society of your choice. Currently it's ASCAP and BMI, um, but we are in conversation with both SOCAN and, and CSAC. Uh, and secondarily, it's registering your songs with those organizations, but it's also registering those songs with um, what I believe is now up to 52 different organizations around the world who collect different royalties from different territories and different income streams. PRS in the UK, SASA in France, GEMA in Germany, Jazzrec in Japan, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm curious, for it to be a year contract, I mean, is, 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 is that sort of like almost that it becomes part of the Song Trust catalog, which is then has sub-publishers in other parts of the world, or, or are people actually getting signed up um, with these different PROs as, as themselves, per se? So the way it works is that you're signed up as part of the Song Trust catalog, and then the Song Trust catalog registers your works in different territories around the world through these different organizations. But they're in your name as the writer. Uh, they're in Song Trust's name as the publishing administrator. No, that makes absolute sense. I was, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, how do you do it so it's a year, but if it's subplot, so, so that makes a lot of sense. I'm yeah, curious. What Go ahead. Really, what we did was is we went to the collection societies around the world, and we, you know, put up with this massive spreadsheet of all of the rules and regulations for each society and how they differ from society to society. It must have been massive. <laughs> oh, God, it's insane. And not only is it insane just from trying to understand the rules and regulations, the fact of the matter is we did some back of the envelope math and worked out that if you wanted to affiliate with all the societies we've affiliated with around the world, um, A, it would be virtually impossible because certain societies have certain requirements about the language you speak or what, you know, whether or not you represent songwriters or have their citizenship from their country. So most individual American or Canadian songwriters have really have no capacity to even register with all these different societies. Um, and number two, uh, there's a cost. In certain societies, it's, it's nominal, $100, $75. In other societies, it's a thousand euro, you know. Uh, when you add it all up, we worked out that you couldn't possibly affiliate with all societies around the world unless you were prepared to spend around twenty-two thousand uh, dollars. So, you know, again, like I said, for most people, that's probably not not a good value. Um, so, we figured we would do it once. We had to do it for downtown anyway, and we could extend that same benefit to all of these individual songwriters by giving them access to to a platform that plugged them right into these different societies. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it's a it's a brilliant thing that you've done. I'm 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 curious. I mean, it, you know, you're talking about 
doing the numbers on the MySpace um, site and realizing that there was, you know, all these artists who hadn't even taken that first step, you know, not even being signed up with one PRO. Um, but it, it seems that the other aspect of, of the basics, I suppose you could say, is, is, is copyrights and the fact that you know, more often than not, it seems that people assume that copyrights are global, that it's an international thing when, you know, that's not really the case. And so it seems to me that there's also this added benefit of not only the, the, the value, uh, the cost it would be to sign up with all of these different, um, you know, uh, PROs and whatnot, um, but also just the fact that it's a company that understands how copyright works and, and, and how they work in the different countries that the songs are being registered in. Pandora is not a company that has been friendly to songwriters for very long. Um, they don't pay songwriters that well. But the CEO of Pandora a few years ago said something that I always remind people of. Um, the internet is global, uh, but copyright is local. Uh, copyright laws vary from country to country. A lot of songwriters, particularly American songwriters, um, believe that if they are affiliated with ASCAP or BMI, it's all they need to do. And I will acknowledge that that's 100% accurate if the only thing you want to do is collect your performance income. As a music publisher who represents songwriters and artists at all levels, I can tell you that on average, uh, performance income will only make up about a third of your revenue. Um, there's a lot of different revenue streams out there, digital revenue streams that, the collect that, that ASCAP and BMI are not associated with, uh, digital downloads, mechanical royalties associated with album sales in different territories around the world, um, different sync licensing schemes that occur on a society by society basis, uh, blanket licensing arrangements that have absolutely nothing to do with ASCAP or BMI. Um, so one of the things that's you know critical for me with Song Trust is to say, look, we're not here to take over your relationship with those collection with, with those performing rights organizations. We're here to augment them, add up, build upon them, um, be a place for you to uh, have your copyrights managed properly until such time that you want to move on to have someone else manage them properly. The idea is that everyone at all levels should always have an option. That's really what we wanted to give. And now Song trust, you know, it's interesting. It's being used by a really broad range of artists. Uh, we're, you know, north of 20,000 now, um, songwriters and artists. And, you know, uh, just yesterday we signed up a new writer who had a song on the last Bruno Mars record. And he just simply chose that he wanted an efficient um, collection system to use. And that's wonderful. We've had songwriters who, you know, have catalogs that, that are much guys who wrote on like the Insane Christmas record from years back. Um, you know, our bands on, that, are, that are on labels like Beggars and Ghostly. Um, it's really, really super diverse in terms of the types of songwriters and artists. And then the thing that I think is like a, a broader testament to the technology and to the platform and its viability is that at Downtown, where we look after the works of folks like the estate of John Lennon, film composers like Hans Zimmer, um, rock bands like Motley Crue and people who write songs for Beyonce and Katy Perry. Um, we use the same technology that SongTrust does and we actually use the same platform that SongTrust does to manage those copyrights. So in terms of its like quality level and all that, it, you know, we really do feel that it is um, you know, uh, the, the best tool out there and 
for many writers, it's, it's really one of the only tools out there um, to properly collect all of their royalties on a global basis in, in the most efficient way possible. That's very cool. And, and you, I mean, knowing that you use it yourself in, in, in downtown music publishing, you know, I, I think that's a great testament of, of the, the power of the service. Um, I'm curious, though, is, 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 you know, say, being a composer that's focusing on licensing and, and cues and, and all of that, I mean, is, is that something that Song Trust is, is as valuable for, or, or is that perhaps not um, your, your main uh, signee, I guess you could say? We are not directly focusing on one particular type of songwriter market at this point. It's pretty broad. Um, we do have people who focus on music for film and TV using the platform. Um, what happens is, is that, as, as, as I'm sure you would know, there's a lot of different ways in which folks give up copyright associated with film and TV. They sometimes give up administration rights, um, so they don't necessarily have their whole rights package available for us to collect. So it's a little bit dicier. That being said, we do have a number of composers who do use the platform for, again, not their entire catalog, but the portions of their catalog that they maintain. One thing that I always want to point out to people is that with SongTrust, it really is a platform. We do not do sync licensing for you. We do not execute sync licenses. Any inbound requests we get for songs we look after are forwarded directly to our clients. So if you wanted to have a sync agent working your catalog, that's cool. We're not involved. We're just going to make sure you get all your back-end royalties associated with those placements. That makes sense. Well, um, I was just going to get your take on, on retitling and, and, and how it gets affected with technology. And I, I guess just to perhaps um, add a bit to that, I would say, you know, with technology like Shazam, as far as discovering music and finding out, you know, what it is you're listening to, you know, I find this whole retitling topic comes up frequently in, in the licensing world. Um, however, you know, is there, what are the sort of, what's your take on retitling? Is there conflicts? I mean, what, what would your, what would your thoughts be? You know, I, I can tell you that I, it is my understanding that you are not uh, allowed to retitle a certain you know, pieces of music um, on a society-by-society society level. Some societies address it, some societies do not. I, for the life of me, um, can fully appreciate why people think it's a good idea. But as you pointed out, as we start using services like Shazam to... Uh, actually enforce uh, the way in which uh, copyrights are licensed and determine how much certain songs have gotten played and therefore how much they'll get paid. Uh, this is going to be extremely complicated and complex and I'm, you know, we, we do not approve of retitling here. We do not allow songwriters signing down into publishing to retitle their works. We do not retitle our works and provide them to, to services to use. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of people have made a lot of money on it, but I don't think it's something that's very long for this world. I I would agree. <laughs> I th I think yeah. I don't know. It's, it's something that seems to come up, and and it's always good to get you know different people's perspective on it. I guess the other question I had for you was, um, and it's it's perhaps a little bit random, um, but. You know the 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 whole black box seems to be something that comes up, and and I don't know if it's always something that people understand as to what black box is, and perhaps how being a member of Song Trust helps in in um, making sure that your money doesn't go to the black box, and if it does, that you collect it. Sure. So um, black box is uh, 
you know, a colloquial word we use in the music industry to, 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 to describe what's known as unallocated income. I'll give you an example. You're a band, you're using CD Baby to distribute your music, and you have not yet signed up for their CD Baby Pro service to collect uh, your, your mechanical, your publishing royalties. So you use that, you CD Baby, and you're selling your music all over the world. You sell 100 copies of your album in the United Kingdom via iTunes, right? And um, iTunes has a deal with an organization called the PRS, another deal with an organization called the MCPS, to pay out royalties associated with each download. If you sell 100 copies, you're owed something in the vicinity of 100 US dollars. So what happens is you're not, as a songwriter, affiliated with any agency to collect that money for you. CD Baby just gets your artist money, your publishing money, they'll only get for you if you're part of their CD Baby Pro service. So, um, you know, that money hangs out at the collection society. iTunes pays over 100% of it. And um, what ends up happening is after a number of years, if you don't come and claim that money, that money goes into unallocated income. And it gets redistributed to local publishers in that territory based on market share. So the amount of US-based and Canadian songwriters who are selling their music around the world and not collecting their mechanical royalties uh, is very significant. It continues to grow, and that money continues to get redistributed to the biggest publishers uh, in those territories around the world. Getting affiliated with SongTrust, um, you know, or using services like CD Baby Pro, which is something we power, uh, really kind of changes the equation because you get paid not only all the money you got from distributing your music, but you also get paid all of your publishing royalties. They never go into the black box because they come to us and then they get paid out to you. And it's not just from the downloads from iTunes. Some people say, oh, I don't have that many. You know, there are a lot of artists out there you know, who make their music available for global distribution and are selling music, an album download here, a single there. And in the aggregate, by the end of the year, they've left a couple hundred dollars on the table in publishing income. And they always say, ah, oh, it's not enough, it's not enough for me. And frankly, if you're, you know, spending, you know, decent chunk of money recording your music, a decent chunk of money marketing and promoting your music, and then your and your life's work, I think it's also important to really spend some time thinking about monitoring and protecting what is easily your most valuable asset, which is your song copyrights, the intellectual property that is the basis for your whole career as an artist. I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's unfortunate because with today's new music industry, it seems that, you know, it's really is about collecting all the different streams of revenue, no matter how big or small they are. And the more you're leaving out, the less you're, you're going to be making. So um, I, 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 of course, want to thank you for doing this. I guess before we go, I should probably just point out, you know, that the song trust, it's, it's not it's not that song trust is going to create the publishing revenue in the first place. I mean, people have to, to be out there getting their music played and getting their music sold and, you know, being able to create that business as well. Um, so is, is there, is there any particular point in which you think people should sign up for song trust or is it something that, you know, sign up tomorrow and then, you know, at least you're sort of signed up or, 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 or is there a better time to wait until, it's worth signing up. My general view is that if you have music in the marketplace, meaning you're, um, you've either written on an album, a proper label is released, or you've released your music yourself uh, to 
iTunes, Spotify, you have videos on YouTube. At that moment in time, it's worth contemplating uh, working with SongTrust. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Justin, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You have been listening to Aaron Bethune. Until next time, stay above the noise.